I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. This week, we're going to take you back to the time of the dinosaurs. Now, that's more than 70 million years ago. And to help us do it, we have from Cambridge University, Matt Wilkinson and Leslie Noe. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming in. We'll be looking at where dinosaurs came from, how they fit into the evolutionary pathway that eventually led to us being here today, what wiped them out, and also how they developed the power of flight. That's Matt's speciality. So if you have any questions about dinosaurs and what they've left behind, where they came from and how they disappeared, 08459 is the phone number. You can also... So email me, chris at nakedscientist.com, or you can text us on 07786 20 Good evening. My name's Chris Smith, and also here to help present tonight's programme is Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Yes, also tonight on The Naked Scientist, we will be taking a look at the updated list of threatened species. And sticking with the environment, we'll also be looking at the impact that global warming is having on migratory birds. But on a lighter note, we'll also be introducing a golf gadget to help you sink the perfect putt. But remember, we are here in the studio waiting for your questions, so give us a call now, 08459 25 2000. And if you're in an experimental mood, in tonight's kitchen science, you'll need a hard-boiled egg. Don't worry, it doesn't have to be a dinosaur egg. A chicken's egg will do, but it does have to be hard-boiled. Derek and Sheena are at Colchester uh, County High School this evening, and they'll be showing you how to do this really exciting experiment, and we have a fabulous prize to give away for that down at the Natural History Museum. That's uh, coming up shortly. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Let's kick off this evening with, as we always do, a quick look at some of the other key science news stories that are going on around the world. And here's something for people that are eager on their golf. Do you play golf, Helen? Um, I've been to the driving range occasionally, and that's about as far as it goes. quite fun. I've tried, and I probably did as well with a golf club as I could have done with a spade. I dug a huge, deep <laughs> hole, so golf probably isn't my cup of tea. Maybe this will help you. Uh, But this is a really good invention. It's actually a US company called uh, LaserLink Golf. And what they've done is to invent uh, invent a laser rangefinder for the golf range. So what you do is you have this hand-operated thing and you pull a trigger on it and it fires a laser beam towards the flag. And the person who is running the golf course just has to put this five-sided reflecting device on top of the flag and the trigger machine fires the laser beam at the reflector and as soon as it senses the laser beam coming back, it counts how long it's taken for the beam to go all the way from the handset to the reflector and come back. And it halves that time and works out, therefore, how far away it is. And the inventor of the system, or one one of the people who markets it, Dan Steiner, who's the vice president of the company, uh, says that um, over a 1,000 of them are in use now in courses in the US. They're proving very popular, but they don't work too well in the fog. 
Yeah, but surely you need to know how hard to hit the ball for how far it has to go. Well, that's the idea. So um, it helps you to work out what the range is. So you can sort of home in and you say, well, last time I hit it with an 8-iron and I kind of overshot the mark, so I might go for the 9-iron this time. Excellent. I know similar tools have been used to help measure how tall trees are by figuring out how far you are, and then you can use trigonometry to figure out how tall it is. Anyway, moving on to a slightly more serious note. This week uh, we saw the release of the latest survey of global biodiversity, which has revealed just how many species around the world are threatened with extinction. It's every two years that the IUCN update their red list of endangered species, and they use knowledge from expert scientists all around the world, selecting species and assessing for whether or not they're likely to go extinct over various different um, time frames. And this is the most detailed assessment we have on the future prospects of global wildlife, so it's really important for us to help understand what changes are taking place. So the new additions this year to the red list unfortunately include polar bears, which face an uncertain future because we already know that climate change seems to be melting the sea ice where they hunt for their food. And also the hippopotamuses in the Democratic Republic of Congo are threatened because they're being poached for their teeth and their meat. And it's not just the exotic species. We have some here in the UK. The black-tailed godwit was added to the list, joining the corncrakes and the red kites, which are all basically have an uncertain future in Britain. And I'm afraid I can't leave without mentioning the oceans, as always. The red list has problems with making marine assessments because we just don't know enough about what lives in the oceans. But this year saw a huge number of shark species being added to the list, which basically means that uh, we're going to have to work very hard at all that conservation and management of those types of species, including the angel shark which is now extinct in the North Sea. Now, Helen, at what stage is a species actually defined as sort of genetically extinct? Because obviously it's all very well having some animals left behind, but when there are too few to create enough genetic diversity that if something comes along that attacks that particular species and they can't respond fast enough because they don't have enough genetic diversity, they're, gonna, they're destined to die out. So at what level is that line drawn? There's, that, there's no absolute um, measure for that. And in fact, sometimes, quite surprisingly, species can go down to really few numbers. For example, the Mauritian kestrel went down to just literally a couple of breeding pairs. And somehow, um, by, by basically captive breeding programmes, they were able to bring them back from the brink of extinction so there's no absolute level and i think there's no absolute point where we need to give up i think we have to keep hope going well let's let's be uh, optimistic about this next story which is also cause for concern because there's a researcher in the netherlands who who's called christian botha and he wondered what the impact of climate change would be on birds that migrate because, of course, migrating birds have evolved to move around the globe. They overwinter in a warm place and this particular bird he's been looking at, the pied flycatcher, spends the winter time in Africa and then it comes back to Europe in time for the spring to breed. And its arrival in the UK is destined to... Or timed to coincide with the food that it wants to feed its young, species of caterpillars, emerging. And so there's lots of food around for the birds to eat. But unfortunately, because climate change has meant temperatures are getting much warmer here in the European areas, the food is emerging much, much sooner than it would do normally. So the birds don't know that. They're leaving Africa at the same time as they would do normally, and they're arriving here in the UK, and what they want to feed their young has all but disappeared. And as a result, the populations of some of these bird species have, dw- have dropped over the last 50 years or so, by in some cases as much as 90%. And this is really cause for concern, because it's unlikely that this effect is just going to be confined to these pied flycatchers. There are going to be other migrating birds that rely on similar, very seasonal types of food. And as a result, they're going to be in trouble too. So unless we start looking at ways around this, it could be cause for concern. At the moment, it's very difficult to predict the long-term future because perhaps these birds will evolve to compensate, they'll change their behaviour, but no-one really knows. 
That's it. And another touching just on climate change again, my second story is about scientists who have just unveiled a brand new snapshot of a surprisingly rich deep sea life that's happening up to five kilometres beneath the waves. A team of 28 international marine scientists have spent the last three weeks trawling the waters of the Atlantic Ocean and delving, as I said, down to five kilometres to discover and catalogue the diversity down there. And what they've found is a surprising diversity in microscopic animals called zooplankton, which form a critical link in the ocean food chains between the plant life and the bigger animals that live in the oceans. And we need to know more about the numbers and species of plankton that live in the oceans so we can begin to understand how changes are happening, including climate change. And one of the really important things we need to know is how things like increasing carbon dioxide is going to make the oceans more acidic, and this is going to have an impact on these incredibly important tiny creatures. This is all part of something called the Census of Marine Life Project, which is a huge 10-year project aiming to basically to map the biodiversity of the world's oceans, something that I mentioned before that perhaps we don't know enough about at the moment. And one of the really exciting things they did in this project was use DNA barcoding on board the ship to actually identify some of these new species that are coming in. Now, traditionally, identifying species takes a long time. It's a traditional thing of sitting down with microscopes and understanding what's going on. But with DNA barcoding, it's kind of taking a snapshot look at the variation of a species from its DNA, a bit like the barcode in a supermarket. And they're doing this at sea already to to identify these new species and understand a little bit more about the deep sea life that's going on down deep down in the oceans. It's important because the point that you made earlier was we hardly know what lives in the ocean. It covers three quarters of the surface of the planet, but we probably know, if we're honest, more about what goes on on the surface of the moon or even the surface of Mars than what goes on at the bottom of the sea. I think that's it. And the thing with this DNA barcoding, it's very quick. It might let us have a bit more chance of seeing what's there before, unfortunately, it's too late. And um, we've uh, all those species have started to go extinct without us even knowing that they were there in the first place. Now, here's uh, something that's bound to fox you. If you've got something that has no surface markings, like a CD, and it's spinning in a CD player, how do you know how fast it's turning? It's really difficult, isn't it? You can't tell if your CD's even spinning around in the CD drive. But if someone puts a label on it, then you can. Well, the planet Saturn has had researchers foxed for many, many years. They've known that it must be spinning, and it's a huge planet. But because the surface is so featureless, it's just a massive great hunk of gas turning in space, probably with a little rocky core. It's been really difficult to crack this conundrum. But now, uh, Giacomo Jean-Pierre, who's a researcher at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, he works for NASA, has come up with the solution. In 2004, the Cassini probe, which was an orbiter designed, left the UK, and it was put into space by the European Space Agency in, 2000, uh, sorry, in 1997. It's journeyed all the way to Saturn, and it deployed the Huygens lander that visited Titan, Saturn's largest moon. But it stayed in orbit around Saturn, making measurements. And one of the things it's been able to measure is the magnetic field of Saturn, and that's given these guys the clue as to how far Saturn's turning. Its orbital period is 10 hours and 47 minutes. And here's Giacomo Jean-Pierre to tell us about what they've been up to. We measured for the first time the uh, periodicity in the magnetic field close to the uh, planet Saturn. And this is important because it may indicate the true rotation period of the planet. Why has that been a, a challenge for scientists to get a handle on previously? Uh, this is something which has eluded scientists for quite a long time. I remind people that Saturn was visited three times in the late 70s, early 80s by three spacecraft, the Pioneer 11 and Voyager 1 and 2. But in all these occasions, it was not possible to see any periodicity in the magnetic field, essentially because the magnetic field of Saturn is very peculiar. It's almost perfectly symmetric with respect to the rotation axis of the planet. So it's really difficult to work out how fast Saturn's turning? 
exactly. What you see from the outside is something which uh, doesn't seem to be spinning at all. So how have you got around the problem? Well, it's essentially a combination of two things. One is that Cassini has been in orbit around Saturn for uh, almost two years now, and therefore we have many more data collected close to the planet. These data were analyzed using some uh, very specific techniques to try to detect periodic signal. And for the first time, we were able to actually detect something very clearly, a period of about 10 hours and 47 minutes. So Saturn actually turns quite quickly. Yes, it's, it's what is called a fast rotator, similar to Jupiter. And this is a strong implication for the internal structure of the planet. So what, what sorts of things does it tell you about that? Well, the, the rotation of the planet is one of the main ingredients to try to determine the internal structure because when you want to determine how the planet is configured inside, you have to include the centrifugal force in the force which determines its shape. So knowing its rotation rate is one of the main ingredients to determine the internal structure of a planet in general. So why were you able to pick this up, but the three other attempts in the, in the 80s missed it? Well, essentially because the, the three other attempts were just flybys, which lasted a few hours. And this periodicity of 10 hours, 47 minutes, requires many, many data to be picked up. So with just a single flyby, or with just three flybys like we had in the 70s, it was not possible to see it. That was Giacomo Jean-Pierre from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, who's managed to successfully tell us that Saturn turns, and a day on Saturn turns uh, in roughly 10 hours, 47 minutes. So in other words, you'd live twice as long on Saturn. Not biologically, but you'd think that you were twice as old as if you were living here on Earth. Helen. I've got an email here from Michael Hansen, who is a biology teacher in Denmark, and he says he often uses the material from our programmes in his classes. Fantastic. Spread the word. And that he loves the programme and really hopes that we'll be able to continue making podcasts for years to come, and I hope so too. I've got, got one here from uh, Selene and also somebody called Christopher Gallagher, and they're both listening to us in Hong Kong. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Now, I hope you're in an experimental mood because this is the time when you need to get your egg because we're going to join now Derek and Sheena from Cambridge University and the Naked Scientists and they're with Imogen and Bryony at Colchester County High School. Good evening, Derek. How's it going? Hello there and welcome to Colchester County High School where we've come this evening to do a really, really easy experiment which you can do at home and which we would love you to do at home because if you can tell us the result, then you can win a prize. So listen out for all the details. Uh, now, with me today is uh, Sheena Elliott who's uh, been setting up a few experiments for us on the kitchen science feature of The Naked Scientist. So welcome to you, Sheena. Hello. Hi there. And uh, what, what is it briefly that we're doing today? All we're doing is we're just sort of turning an egg into a gyroscope. Fantastic. OK, then. And also, we've got some helpers here who are from Colchester County High School, very kindly come down to do this experiment. So could you please give us your names and years that you're in, please? Uh, my name's Imogen and I'm in Year 12. My name's Friday and I'm in Upper 6. Excellent. OK, then. And are you guys budding scientists? Are you doing science at the moment, Imogen? Yes, I do all three sciences and maths. Whoa, a hardcore person. And yourself, Bryony? I just do chemistry and physics. OK, that's brilliant. Colchester have been wonderful. They've always given us really keen scientists, haven't they? So that's great. OK, well, you at home, you can do this as well. So what you need is a hard-boiled egg, and that 
is it. Honestly, all you need is a hard-boiled egg, so get looking through your fridge or wherever they may be, or if not, please do go ahead and boil one uh, for, I don't know, five, six minutes. I'm sure that'll do the trick. Um, If people have got some eggs in their fridge and they're not sure whether they're boiled or hard-boiled, Sheena, is there a quick way to tell uh, which is which? Well, in fact, yes, there is. All you need to do is put them both onto onto a surface and set them both spinning, stop them both spinning with your index finger, and then take your fingers off, and the the raw egg will actually then start spinning again. Okay, and why does that happen? That's because of all the fluid inside it doesn't stop moving when you stop the shell. So then when you take your finger off the shell, then that fluid inside starts the shell moving round again. Ah, so it's still got momentum. Okay, well, there you go. You've had that explained. So there's a good way to spot your boiled egg. And now, of course, Sheena, once people have got their boiled eggs, what are they to do with those? Um, they just need to lie it flat on a surface. You need a sort, of a, a sort of medium roughness surface. Something like glass is probably too smooth, but then carpet would definitely be too rough. So probably just like a normal kitchen top would be fine. Okay, and also maybe is paper okay as well, like a smooth piece of paper? Yep, a smooth piece of paper or maybe sort of a fairly smooth bit of wood, that would work as well. And then when they've got that surface, what do they do? They just then have to get their hard-boiled egg spinning on the surface on its side as fast as they can, so it might take a few practice goes to get it spinning fast. And when you say on its side, that means the egg is kind of long ways across, isn't it? So it's kind of not pointing up, it's pointing across. Yep, it's the way that it would be if you would just leave the egg on the surface. And then what should people be telling us? Just observe what happens. There's something particular that we're looking for, and when you see it, I think you will know. So just have a few practice ones and see what you can see. Excellent. And we, the Naked Scientists, assure you that it is remarkable. So please do get those boiled eggs, or get those eggs boiling, in fact, if you want to uh, make your own boiled egg and, uh, and get it spinning. So we've got Imogen and Bryony here, of course, who are wondering, looking at me, wondering what on earth is going to happen. So uh, Imogen, what, what do you think might happen when we spin that boiled egg? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. And Bryony, any idea? I haven't got a clue at all. Can you have a, a massive stab in the dark at all, either of you? It might move slightly differently as to spin in in some direction. OK, well, thanks very much for those suggestions. Um, anyway, you at home, of course, you can do this too. And if you can tell us the right result, if you can get this working on, on the right sort of surface, do maybe experiment with a few different smooth surfaces just to see if you can get it working, please do give us a call. So the number is 08459 25 And you can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. So that's all you need to do, get that boiled egg spinning on a fairly smooth surface. That's all from Colchester County High School. So we'll be back with Sheena, myself, uh, Imogen and Brian need to find out exactly what happens and an explanation as well. So until then, it's back to the studio. Thanks very much, Derek. And if you want to have a go at that, uh, I can tell you right now we have a fabulous prize for you this evening because we've got two family tickets to give away to Dino Jaws, which is coming to the Natural History Museum. It's setting up at the moment. This is an amazing display of mechanical dinosaurs. These guys are frightening, and we'll be catching up with them later because Fran Beckerleg, our Naked Science roving reporter, has been down in London having an up-close and personal encounter with them. But if you want to have a go to win those tickets, get calling now. It's either via our competition, Science Fact or Science Fiction, or by having a go at Kitchen Science. 08459 25 2000. Send us a text on 07786 20 1960, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Now we're going to take a hop across the pond for this week's science update with Chelsea Wald and Bob Hersham. We'll, we'll be discussing some of the bizarre side effects of strokes and ways in which you, you can reduce your chances of being affected. This week on Science Update, we'll be talking about stroke. It happens when a blood vessel to the brain gets blocked or ruptures. We'll discuss one rather odd sort of brain damage that stroke can cause and that researchers are studying. But first, we'll start by talking about something you can do to protect yourself from the damaging effects of stroke. 
That's right. Scientists know, and you should too, that having a diet rich in calcium reduces your risk of having a stroke. But what if you have a stroke anyway? Can calcium help you then? To study this question, neurologist Bruce Oviagale of UCLA measured the level of calcium in the blood of 240 stroke patients as they were admitted to the hospital. What he found was striking. That those patients who had the highest level of calcium were 50% less likely to have a severe stroke and 75% less likely to have a poor outcome when they were discharged from the hospital. He says this could be because people with high levels of calcium have generally healthier lifestyles, but studies also suggest that calcium itself may help keep brain cells alive during a stroke. If brain cells do die during a stroke, especially if they die in a discrete area of the brain, it can offer brain scientists a rare opportunity to study the function of that area, which can sometimes be very specific. Well, it's rude for anyone to point, but for some people, it's impossible. Brain researcher Laurent Claret and a team of researchers from Inserm in France are studying a bizarre condition generally triggered by a stroke. When I ask them, point to my nose, they cannot. They just point to their own body parts, their own nose. But they understand that there is a mistake, but they cannot do it anyway. Strangely, they can point to objects on other people, like clothes and glasses, and to photos of people. In many cases, this is the patient's only symptom. Claret says this indicates that the brain has a special part devoted to recognizing and communicating with living people, a part that in these patients is damaged. Well, that's all for this week. Next time, we'll talk about some scientists who have hit the rewind button on cell division. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And remember, if you want to hear more about science stories from the States, you can go to Bob and Chelsea's website, which is www.scienceupdate.com. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. We are, of course, talking about the science of dinosaurs, a Jurassic jolly, if you will, this evening. And we have in the studio Matt Wilkinson and Leslie Noe from Cambridge University. Matt's an expert on how dinosaurs evolved the ability to fly. They became pterosaurs. If you'd like to know about that, call now, 08459 25 2000. Leslie, can you just orientate us in sort of space and time about where dinosaurs are thought to have come from in the first place and where they went? Right, well, the, the dinosaurs existed during the Mesozoic, so something like 200 million years ago until about 65 million years ago, when perhaps a rock came and smashed into the Earth and made them all extinct. Um, they evolved from a group of reptiles um, known as the diapsids, animals that have two holes in the, in the top of their skulls. That's painful. How do they come by those? Ah, well, those, they're very interesting. They're there to help the muscles of the jaws work more efficiently. The most primitive, anim- uh, primitive reptiles had no holes in the skulls. And they could attach their muscles to the, to the bones, but it's actually more efficient to attach a muscle to an edge. So if you create a hole, you actually make the skull stronger and make the jaw muscles stronger, which means you can eat all sorts of things. I've heard that crocodiles actually predate the dinosaurs, evolutionarily speaking. Is, is that true? Yep, that's right. They, they're along the same line. They're both archosaurs. Um, But the crocodiles evolved and seem to have hit on this fantastically uh, wonderful uh, mode of life in which they can sit in near shore waters and and grab anything that comes down for a drink or whatever. And they did that long before the dinosaurs. And, of course, they're still with us today. But that bodes and places an obvious question, which is, if these guys are around before the dinosaurs and they're still around today, why didn't they die out by the same catastrophic effect that wiped out the dinosaurs? That is a very good question. If I can answer you that... 
I, you know, I'd be a millionaire, I'm sure. You know, things like the, the turtles survived, lots of lizards and snakes survived, but the dinosaurs didn't. Lots of plants went extinct. Lots of these microorganisms you were talking about earlier on the, that lived in the sea also went extinct. But also lots of them survived. And trying to answer that question, just why certain things like the big dinosaurs and the pterosaurs became extinct, but other things like the mammals, the turtles and the crocodiles survived, is, is a real mystery still. What do we know about what the Earth was like to live in 300 million to 200 million years ago when these things first appeared on the scene? There was a lot of oxygen around, wasn't there, which meant massive animals. Well, the, the oxygen levels may have been increased. Um, there was certainly seems to have been more ecological space. There weren't lots of animals in, doing lots of things like the, there are at the moment. On the other hand, there were lots of plants around like there are, so lots of food, lots of little scuttly animals running around, so maybe that was also you know, a, a driver for getting big. The bigger you get, the more of the prey that's in the environment you can, you can, you can get hold of and fill but yourself up. There were up massive with. insects, weren't there? I mean, some dragonflies had a wingspan of metres across. Quite well, this was just before the dinosaurs. This was during the Carboniferous, so this would have been uh, about 300 million years ago. The first dinosaurs appeared about 200 million years ago. So those huge insects were already gone and, and kind of, or at least in decline. But yes, there were certainly insects around, and lots of the early dinosaurs were insectivorous, were, were eating insects, certainly. So given that sort of crocodiles and dinosaurs must have come out of the same mould, if you look at how a crocodile's body works, does that give you pretty good clues as to how a dinosaur would have worked too? Well, it gives us some clues, but strangely enough, for at least some of the dinosaurs, the birds probably give us a, a better clue. We know that there are some very ancient birds that were around in the Jurassic, or bird-like dinosaurs, or maybe they're dinosaur-like birds, particularly one called Archaeopteryx. It has feathers, but it also has teeth in its jaws, which modern birds don't. They have this horny beak, and it has a long, bony tail. Very dinosaur-like, and if you look at the skeleton, lots of things are very dinosaur-like about them. On the other hand... Um, so we know birds are warm-blooded now. Does that mean that at least some of the dinosaurs were also warm-blooded and had sort of an insulation of perhaps feathers or feather-like things? So, uh, Somebody said to me that uh, there was a concept of sort of gigantothermy. They're so big, they just can't lose heat quickly enough to cool down, and so they almost have a warm-bloodedness about them, even though they're not actually, by design, warm-blooded like we are. Absolutely. Big animals, big crocodiles... If you, if you stick a thermometer into a big crocodile and, and, it, and the temperature changes during the day, they keep their temperature roughly constant throughout the day, no matter what the changes are around them. Juvenile crocodiles, on the other hand, track the temperature of the environment. They're much smaller, so they lose heat much quicker, but also gain it much quicker. And undoubtedly, some of the dinosaurs were doing this. They were, like say, gigantotherms. And crocodiles, the sex of a crocodile, when it uh, comes out of an egg, is determined by the temperature at which the egg develops. Would you think that's going to be true for dinosaurs too? And, well, and how is that achieved? Um, how it's achieved is very difficult. I don't think anybody knows for certain how this um, temperature-dependent sex determination, as it's known, occurs. How you know a turtle lays its eggs, and some of them, depending on the temperature, and with a very small range of perhaps one or two degrees, would depend whether they hatch as females, as males, or whether it's sort of half and half. But across the whole population, you end up with an approximately half male and half female, which is, which is pretty useful. What sort of clues have we still got, Leslie, um, as to what these dinosaurs were like? I mean, presumably it's, it's all down to the fossil record, isn't it? There's nothing else to go on. Well, we use the fossil record. We look at the fossils. We look at the bones to work out how the bones fit together. You know, you look at human skeleton, you get an idea of what, how much movement you've got around your shoulders and around your knees and so on. They can only bend in certain ways. Uh, we can do the same with dinosaur skeletons and get an idea of could they move very fast. But you can use other hints. You can use, for instance, looking at their trackways to maybe work out how fast they could go. You know, when you're walking, your trackways are much smaller than when you're running and much further apart. Um, 
we can look at, let's say, comparative anatomy, compare them to other living animals. You know, if we think it was something sort of a big herbivore, maybe we could compare it to an elephant. Maybe we compare it, its sort of general lifestyle, its ability to move and so on. And again, we've got the birds. They're a very good analogue for some of these fast-moving sort of Tyrannosaurus rex and their sort of smaller, smaller relatives for how fast they might have been moving. And we can look at their teeth to, for instance, work out what they're eating. If you've got sharp, pointy teeth, they're probably eating meat. They've got these flat grinding or teeth-like cutting surfaces, they're probably eating plants. So we can get a good idea of what, you know, lots about their biology just simply by looking at them and sort of comparing them to modern forms. Did they evolve in the sea and then move on to land, or did a lot of these big land dinosaurs that we, we know and, and love from the museums and things, were they just native to land, they evolved on land, or, or, or where else did they come from? Well, dinosaurs, true dinosaurs, the word dinosaurs, um, they're only found on the land. The reptiles that lived in the sea are a slightly different branch. They're still diapsid, they're still archosaurian reptiles, but they're not true dinosaurs. So no true dinosaur ever flew. So pterosaur's not really a true dinosaur, although lots of people think of them as, as uh, flying dinosaurs. And, and the things you see swimming around the sea are also not truly dinosaurs, but things like Tyrannosaurus rex and the great big sauropods with their long necks and long tails are all, all big dinosaurs. So no, they all evolved on land and, and remained on the land. That was their sort of specialisation. And what was going on in the sea at the same time as these guys are strutting their stuff on land? Well, in the sea you have all sorts of things. You have lots and lots of, of organisms, things that I, I love studying, the, the, the plesiosaurs and pliosaurs. So things that, if you think about what people think might, have been, might be living in Loch Ness, these sort of long-necked, long-tailed things with, with lots of flippers... Um, these were swimming in the sea and they were eating everything that was there. Some of them were huge. There's some of these jaw, for instance, in the Oxford University Museum that's three metres long. I mean, that animal was sort of whale size. What would he have eaten? He would have eaten anything he could get into his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like anything could go in his mouth if he's that big. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the animals that were swimming around, he could have eaten some of those whole. It was so big, he probably didn't need teeth to deal with them. But there must have been other things there that he could, could prey on as well. OK, it's uh, The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen. We're talking with Leslie Noe, and shortly we'll be talking with uh, Matt Wilkinson. They're both from Cambridge University, and they're experts on the dinosaur age. In a minute, we're going to be looking at Leslie's impressive array of fossils, which he's brought in, and talking a bit about that. Uh, and we'll also be catching up with someone called Mary Schweitzer, who's from uh, the States, and she has been demineralizing, stripping away the mineral from fossils, and she's found something very interesting, what she thinks might be original dinosaur tissue, and we'll be checking that out in just a second. Just a quick update on kitchen science. Remember, very easy. All you have to do is hard-boil an egg and then give it a spin. What happens to it? We've heard so far from uh, Maggie, who's in Tavram. She thinks the egg spins and rocks from side to side. Not quite right, Maggie. Uh, if you're on the right lines and you're spinning your egg, then get on the phones and tell us, 08459 25 uh, Daniel Judd is on the right lines, I can tell you that. Um, and Steve is in March. He said the egg, when spinning, looks like a ball. It looks uh, like it moves in a circle. Mm, not quite, Steve. Give it a bit more of a spin. And uh, Stuart from Sawtree is definitely also on the right lines. If you reckon you are, are eager to get down to the Natural History Museum, we have got a couple of family tickets for this fantastic exhibition that's come to town, and we're going to give somebody those tickets tonight 08459 25 2000 is the number or email chris at nakedscientist.com right now i'm gonna i've been tantalizing you with this i'm going to introduce you to mary schweitzer she has been demineralizing these fossils so mary tell us what's this all about we've known for a long time that some of the basic assumptions about what is a fossil have been wrong the original mineralogy is still present in most dinosaur bone in the manner that the dinosaur laid it down so people do not assume that soft tissues can be preserved still soft. So how did you actually discover that if you take away the hard part, there's some soft tissue left underneath? It was totally accidental. We found 
this novel tissue lining the uh, inner parts of the long bones that looks a lot like medullary bone from birds, which is a reproductive tissue. The problem is, when you're working with bone, minerals get in the way of a lot of your analyses. So with modern bone, you remove the mineral and it leaves the protein in the original orientation and structure. My idea was to remove part of the mineral and see if we could sort of etch away the mineral and get a, get a shadow, if you would, of what was originally there. But in the process of, of removing part of the mineral, we accidentally removed all of the mineral and the tissues did not go away. They were still there and they were soft and flexible. So it was accidental. And when you sort of dug down in there with a microscope and had a close look at what you'd uncovered, what did you find? Well, what we found was the soft tissue matrix. If this was modern bone, this would be collagen. If you remove the mineral from bone, you're left with stretchy collagen, fibrous material. We found that. And what we found also, bone is a very, very vascular tissue with a lot of blood vessels moving through it. And we found what apparently looks like blood vessels coursing through the bones when you remove the mineral. And if you zoom in on those blood vessels, are there blood cells inside? Well, there's something inside. We have, I can't answer whether they're blood cells till we complete the analyses, but there certainly are small microscopic structures in size that are the right size and shape. So what other questions, now that you've found that you can find these soft tissues, what other key questions will this enable you to answer about and, and, and address in terms of our understanding of dinosaur physiology and that kind of thing? Well, one of the key questions is, are they really original soft tissues or are they somehow some geochemical replacement? If they are original soft tissues, that makes the rest of our job very easy. If we can get, for example, protein sequence data, we can look at um, evolutionary relationships. We can look at the rate of evolutionary change as mo one molecule accumulates mutations, for example. And you mentioned that you may have a way of telling the sex of dinosaurs. Well, birds, modern birds, produce a bone tissue just during ovulation and reproduction. And we found that tissue in dinosaur bone. So it's possible, since it's only female birds, only during reproduction, if the tissue's present in dinosaurs, we can prove that it's female. Unfortunately, if it's a female dinosaur that's not reproducing, it's not going to have the tissues, and it's not going to help us at all. Why do they have that? Because they're, um, they draw and mobilize so much calcium during producing eggshells, if they're like modern birds, that they need to offset um, the destruction to their bones. And this is an evolutionary ad advantage for animals that shell like this. That was Mary Schweitzer from uh, North Carolina State University discussing how we might be able to tell the boy dinosaurs from the girl dinosaurs. That is, even if we can't recreate them, we can still get tantalising bits of them. They're proteins from uh, fossils that they left behind over 70 million years ago. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and we're joined this evening by Leslie Noe and Matt Wilkinson from Cambridge University. We're talking about dinosaurs and fossils and ancient things, and if you'd like to join in our discussion, 08459 252000, you can send us a text, which is 07786 201960. Or you can email me, chris, at nakedscientist.com. Andrew's got in touch, he's in Essex, and he wants to know how long the Earth takes to spin around the sun, and will this time ever change? Well, the answer is the sun uh, stays where it is in the centre of our solar system, and all the planets spin around the edge, and they take a varying length of time depending upon how far away from the sun they are. For us, it's one year, which is why we have those seasons in a year, because the Earth is slightly tilted on its uh, axis... So as it goes around in its slightly elliptical orbit, it, some parts of the world are slightly further away from the sun at some points in the year, 
the orbit around the sun and that's why it goes to winter and then it, as it gets closer again it goes through spring and then summer so it's one year andrew right leslie hi quick question for you uh, this is tony he's an ipswich and he says is there any chance of scientists finding color pigments from dinosaurs or will we just have to keep guessing that is a very good question. Um, I'm not aware of any dinosaurs that have been found with their colours, you know, the skin colour preserved. Obviously, you'd need to preserve the skin. It's no good, no good having just the bones preserved. You need the soft parts on the outside to be able to work out their colour. There are certainly some invertebrates that have been found that are much older from Czechoslovakia, where you've got an out, a shell on the outside that's got its colour banding preserved. So I guess it's possible. And I think, if I remember rightly, a couple of years ago in, in Nature, there was a paper that was supposed to have preserved the dinosaur's heart. And I think that had some sort of red colour with it, and that was kind of inferred to be some of the original pigments. But, no, we, we, I think we're largely guessing. Matt? Yeah, if I might chip in, I mean, um, I think only a few months ago um, an insect was discovered, a flying insect. No, it was actually a fossil uh, lacewing or an antlion, uh, where we had bands of colour on the wings actually preserved in the fossil. Uh, so I think although it would be very difficult to actually pinpoint exactly what colour these things are, it may sometimes be possible to see if these things were patterned, uh, if they had stripes or something. So, yeah, it, it's worth just sitting tight and seeing what, what we dig out of the ground. Uh, John Labina's actually listening in California, and he'd like to ask, uh, as the North becomes less ice-covered because of global warming and things like that, will we see more discoveries like, and he refers to Tiktaalik, which was the fish that mm. we talked about recently, uh, which shows these intermediate features between a fish that lives in the sea and, and an animal that lives on land. And he's saying, so as the ice retreats, are we going to see even more of these kind of fancy discoveries? I would guess as more land surface is revealed, it reveals more um, sediments that can contain fossils, whether they be dinosaurs or, or things that are much further back along the sort of evolutionary lineage. And I would say almost certainly you know, that might be one of the upsides of global warming. Uh, maybe not, not, not a good upside, but at least we can get more information on our, on our long-term history. I suppose one other good example of this uh, is the discovery, not quite in the dinosaurs' time frame, but in our time frame, of the 5,000-year-old Iceman, Ertzi, that was frozen into the top of a glacier in the mixture between the Austrian and Italian Alps. And it was actually the recession of that glacier that revealed him. And people then were able to retrieve the body, and he turned out to have an amazing story to tell when they analysed him very carefully. Yeah, absolutely. We, we never really know what we find. I mean, every now and then we find mammoths up in the, the Siberian steppe and so on. So, yes, the, the sort of the melting of the glaciers and the, the, glacial, the glacial ice pushing forward reveal things that you know, we had no idea were there and can tell us fantastic stories. Well, let's look at this flight problem um, and pterosaurs. These are the things that really horror movies are made of, Matt, <laughs> but they were a real entity. How did they learn to fly? Well, then, very good question. I'm afraid we don't really have a very clear answer to that at the moment. That's mainly because uh, as soon as the first fossil, fossil pterosaur crops up, um, this is about 220 million years ago, it's a fully formed pterosaur. Um, I want to just emphasise what Leslie said earlier, that pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. Um, so they're not flying dinosaurs. And in fact, I mean, I, I would disagree with Leslie. I'd say that we do have flying dinosaurs, but they're actually still alive because birds are evolved from dinosaurs. Many authorities would say that birds are dinosaurs. So that's, it's actually quite a different story. And there we actually see the transition. We can see it actually happening. But in the, with the pterosaurs, as soon as it's there, it's, 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 it's got its wings, it, it can fly. That's not to say we can't have a bit of a guess at how they might have done it. We were probably looking at uh, very small lizard-like things that were living in trees that became gliders, roughly like um, modern gliding lizards like Draco, the, the, this sort of flying dragon thing, or the flying gecko. And that gradually the, the wing expanded and gradually they became true flapping flyers. 
I guess it's a bit like flying fish in the same way, isn't it? They've, they've gently modified their fins so that now they can leave the water and, and surf above the water in the air for back perhaps 100 metres. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you're looking at a, a somewhat different... Um, evolutionary route to get to flapping flight because with the flying fish you don't have that gliding start. They actually really had to develop uh, where they use their tail really to to get given their thrust. I mean that's not quite the same thing but yes, yes, it's it's using a structure which they already have and just improving it, honing it over millions of years. But they didn't have feathers, did they? Uh, Pterosaurs, no. No, they had a skin membrane wing so it's roughly like uh, what we see in bats Uh, but not quite the same because bats have um, a lengthened all of their fingers, uh, and many of the, uh, the four of the fingers actually support the wing, whereas in pterosaurs it's only the fourth finger, so one hugely long finger. So a very simple sail-like wing, superficially. Given that you've said these guys are not dinosaurs, and birds yes. are dinosaurs, yes. birds use feathers, well, what happened to the pterosaurs then? Um, well, they went extinct at the same time as the, um, the non-bird dinosaurs, I should say, um, so about 65 million years ago. Um, we don't know exactly why they went extinct. I mean, um, I have a personal belief that there was a, a meteorite impact. I think there's a lot of very good evidence for that now. Uh, one thing that is rather interesting about terrestrial evolution is that when, when they start, as I say, when they first crop up about 220 million years ago, uh, they're quite small animals, so you're talking about blackbird size. Um, and they, they stay reasonably small for the next sort of 100, 150 million years. Then when you enter the Cretaceous period, so starting from about 130, 140 million years ago, they start getting really, really big. And throughout well, the how, whole... How big's big? I mean, what sorts of things are taken to the skies? OK, well, the, the largest one, which is actually also the last of its kind, uh, had a wingspan of 12 metres. That was Quetzalcoatlus. And that's I do an mean aeroplane. 12 metres. Yeah, that, that's a, a light aircraft, essentially. Good. Um, How does something like that get airborne? This is a real mystery. Um, in person, I work on a slightly different group, a different family of pterosaurs called the Ornithochirids. Um, they tend to crop up a bit earlier, um, and they reach wingspans of uh, seven, eight metres. Uh, but these things are probably living on the edges of cliffs. Uh, we know they, they, have, they fed on fish. We always find them in marine deposits. Uh, so they're probably doing something a bit like uh, the modern albatross, or probably more accurately the modern frigate birds. So just jumping off cliffs, using gravity to get the required speed to keep going. But the trouble with something like Quetzalcoatlus is that we've found uh, their fossil remains about 250 miles away from the nearest sea. There are no cliffs around. These things would probably have had to take off from the ground, and that is a real, real problem. Um, these things may have weighed over a quarter of a tonne. And uh, yeah, When you look at, uh, say, a chicken, it's got incredibly well-developed breast muscles in yes. order just to lift a chicken. Yes, yeah. So what does that tell you about how big this dinosaur... Well, I can't call it a dinosaur. How big this pterosaur would have to be in terms of its musculature to get something like that airborne? Oh, uh, well, the, the, the thing that's probably going in favour of the pterosaurs, they're built along very different lines to chickens. I mean, chickens um, are very good at explosive takeoffs. I mean, probably a better example is something like a pheasant or a, or a pigeon. They've got relatively short, stubby wings, very, very powerful muscles because they can really sort of shoot straight up, go straight up vertically. Pterosaurs weren't built along the same lines at all. They don't have, um, and if you've ever seen a bird skeleton or ever eaten a bird really you might notice that the the breastbone has a huge keel on it uh, which is where all the flight muscles go pterosaurs don't really have anything of that size um so they would have been doing something really rather different when they when they took off I mean, so run into the wind or something yeah maybe but again there's actually still another problem for pterosaurs because the wing membrane was actually attached to the legs um so even that so would have raised into the wind yeah. yes i mean they would have to have taken off into the wind certainly but um yeah it's still a mystery it's something i'm working on so can you help with the mystery the naked scientists chris and helen we're talking dinosaurs matt wilkinson there talking about pterosaurs if you'd like to ask any questions 08459 25 2000 is the phone number or send us a text on 07786 201960 
The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Two weeks ago, the Natural History Museum in London got invaded by these really quite scary things. This is a mechanical dinosaur exhibition. It's called Dino Jaws, massive animatronic dinosaurs set up to form a new exhibition which is going to open in June. And we have got two family tickets to give away this evening. We could be giving them to you if you want to go along. It's very expensive, so this is a good money's worth. You either take part in our kitchen science experiment, we've heard from quite a few people who are on the right lines, just hard-boil an egg and give it a spin. Something pretty spectacular happens. What is it? 08459 2000, or you can email us, chris at nakedscientist.com, or if you want to phone in, talk to our scientists who are here in the studio. We have Matt Wilkinson and Leslie Noe, and uh, then have a go at our competition, Science Fact or Science Fiction, and uh, you, if you get the highest score today, then uh, we'll give you one of those tickets. But first of all, let's actually get up close and personal, because our Naked Scientist reporter, Fran Beckerleg, has gone down there to speak to Angela Milner at the exhibition and find out what it's all about. Watch out, Fran, sounds pretty scary. <laughs> Wow, that sounds pretty scary. Am I right to be scared of this one? Would he have eaten me? I don't think this one would have eaten you. This one's actually called Baryonyx. And as you can see from this rather nice animatronic scene, this was a fish eater. Rather unusually, some of its gut contents were actually preserved. And it had many semi-digested fish scales inside the rib cage where the stomach would have been. Now these over here look very familiar from a film a few years ago. Are they velociraptors? They are, but what perhaps is less familiar, they now all have a feathery covering because of some really important fossil finds that have been made in China. And remarkably, even the um, feathery coverings on the dinosaurs were preserved. And how can you tell what all these dinosaurs in here actually ate? We've got absolute positive evidence what Velociraptor ate because there is actually a uniquely preserved fossil from the Gobi Desert which shows a Velociraptor and its prey animal here which is called Protoceratops locked in combat. And how can you tell how Velociraptors and other predators actually hunted, whether they chased their prey or laid in wait and pounced? That we really don't know. Velociraptors... You can tell from the build of the skeleton that they were small, uh, lightly built and therefore likely to have been active animals. Some of these plant eaters are absolutely enormous. They must have had to eat an awful lot of plants to sustain themselves. Did they have special adaptations to help digest? One of the models we have in the exhibition, which is called Edmontosaurus, developed a special chewing system in the mouth. So it almost had two sets of cheese graters in its cheeks, allowing it to chew up things very efficiently. In other big dinosaurs, the sauropods, they uh, must have had to eat almost continuously and they had really big uh, fermenting stomachs full of pebbles that helped to, to break up the food and digest it that way. So how much food would an adult iguanodon have to eat per day, do you reckon? Maybe sort of up to 60, maybe 70 kilos a day of, of foliage. They must have devastated the areas they were feeding in. That's indeed very much thought to be the case, particularly with the big sauropods. And several scientists have actually suggested that they may have been directly responsible for the rise of flowering plants, which started out as little sort of weed-like plants that could grow and breed quickly and easily, whereas all of the trees that the sauropods are feeding on at the time were conifers, which take a long time to grow. So, yes, they may literally have changed the landscape. Fran Beckerleg talking to Dr Angela Milner at the Natural History Museum in London about the Dino Jaws exhibition, which opens on June the 30th. The tickets are now on sale, but we've got two family set of tickets to give away this evening if you want to get in touch with us. 08459 25 Doreen in Shoulder near Kings Lynn's on the right lines with our egg experiment, as is John in Colchester. Get a hard-boiled egg and spin it. Tell us what happens and you could be off down to that exhibition. Helen. Now, all this talk of dinosaurs, um, Leslie's actually brought him into the studio here. Um, some fossil 
fossils from the Sedgwick Museum. Now, what sort of things have we got here to look at, Leslie? Right, we've got a range of things. Uh, we've got a dinosaur claw, so this is something and that's... a that's... claw. I thought it might be... It looks a little bit a mini, a miniature rhinoceros horn. Possibly, you know, right. the one that's on the nose. Yeah. I thought that's what it might be, but no. Yeah, this fossil's <laughs> kind of uh, sort of cone-shaped and curved. It's got a couple of cl- um, grooves up the side of it, and it's about as long as my index finger, so my front finger. So you can get some idea of how big that is, or as big as your hand is across, if you like. This came from a meat-eating dinosaur. The sort of the groove down the side would have been where the tendon would have fitted, so this thing could have controlled it when it was you know, catching its prey or whatever. So quite. A, so quite it can nice move thing. it a bit like a cat can sort of... It's not, not retractable, but can it sort of control its claws and, and you know, yep. grab onto what it's about to, to feed on? Yep, so Fantastic. perhaps a little bit like the Velociraptors in, in Jurassic okay. Park, sinking its claws into something. Fantastic. And this one here looks like a... It, oh, yes, what's this round... OK. It looks a bit like a slice of an... Oh, apple, dried apple slice, I think, absolutely, buried absolutely. in this rock. Yeah, a piece of grey rock, which has come from Lyme Regis, which is where someone very oh, right. famous, Mary Anning, was, was collecting. And this is actually a fossilised eyeball of an ichthyosaur. An ichthyosaur was a, ah. a dolphin-like reptile that lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. It's one of these ones you were talking about in earlier, and uh, these reptiles that lived in the sea, but looked quite a lot like modern dolphins, they looked did? just like a modern dolphin, except a modern dolphin's tail goes up and down, whereas these things look just like a, a dolphin, but its um, tail would have moved left and Right, like a fish. Fantastic. So some real life, not quite dinosaurs in the studio with us now. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. We have heard from Steve in March. Uh, He's been spinning his egg and uh, he's now on the right lines. And Hannah Goldsmith from Cambridge has also managed to get on the right lines with our kitchen science experiment. So have we got a winner this evening, Petro? Apparently we have John. Hello, John. Uh, hello there, friend. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. You've had a go at our experiment. What did you find? Well, first off, I'd like the uh, tickets to go to one of the young, younger families who might be listening. The egg walked round in a circle about 12 inches diameter, getting close to the edge of the washing machine, but then it, <laughs> went, through, it went through a resonance or a shimmy yeah. and tried to stand on its small end. Right, well, that's an intriguing observation, John. Hang on there in Colchester. Let's go back to Colchester County High School where Derek and Sheena are with Brian and Imogen and see if you're right, OK? Stay on the line and let's find out. Derek, has he got the right answer? Hello again. Welcome back to Colchester County High School where we are indeed waiting to see what happens when this egg is spun, this boiled egg that we've got ready here. So who's up for this, Imogen and Bryony? Who wants to do it? Um, I will. OK, that's Imogen. Here we go then. It's on the surface and you are going to spin it. So tell us what you see. It's spinning. What is it doing? It's standing up on its end, but it is wobbling a bit. OK, now, of course, we do have a past master at this, uh, Sheena here, who's done it before. So, Sheena, would you care to to do it, you know, let's do it really, really hard and then see what happens. OK, I'll have a go. Wow, it's just almost standing there. It's, It's hardly moving. Yeah, I mean, that was a a demonstration by an expert there. Sheena basically spun it on its side very, very quickly, and within a second or two, wasn't it? It was pretty quick, wasn't it? It just went right up onto its its end, and it is still spinning now, and we've been talking about it, and only now is it actually falling down back onto its side. So, Sheena, we're all dying to know exactly why has that happened. OK, then. Well, actually, I think for sort of over 100 years, scientists have actually been puzzling over this. And it wasn't until over, sort of, I think, 2002 that Keith Moffat, who's a mathematician at the um, University of Cambridge, actually published a paper of this in Nature. And it's really quite mathematical, but I'm going to try and sort of break it down a bit into, into science that you and I can, can understand. That is what we like. OK, go for it. OK, so, so what it all boils down to is... Um... <laughs> ho, ho. <laughs> 
is, um, is friction. So we're going to start off with just considering the shape of the egg. Now, we all know that an egg is quite an irregular shape. It's not like a sphere. And we're still going to consider the centre of mass um, of, of the egg. So I'll just explain what that is. So the centre of mass is where you can be, consider all of the weight to be acting for the egg. So you can imagine it was a point which is representing the whole egg and its mass. Just on the point of centre of mass, with something that is perfectly kind of symmetrical, like a sphere, you know, a football, we can say the centre of mass is kind of in the middle, dead in the middle, can't we? But I suppose the point about the egg is it's not... Yeah, exactly. And, and because it's not, that's when, when we start spinning it, then strange things start happening because the centre of mass is, is sort of moving round in the egg and it's not where the egg is sat on the surface. Yeah, so the centre of mass of the egg is not directly above the point where the egg is actually contacting the surface. Yeah, so we, what we find is when we start spinning it, because it's not above the point where it's spinning, then it starts to wobble a bit and you get this sort of like this jerky motion of the egg. And because you have this jerky motion of the egg, that's where the friction comes in because it's acting between the egg and the surface that it's spinning on. And this is why it's so critical what the surface is made of that we try to do this experiment. And with this egg wobbling a bit, you have like a, a friction between the egg and the surface. And the, the friction is giving a horizontal force onto the egg. And if ever you have some sort of spinning body which has a, a force acting on it, then it can behave like a gyroscope. Yes, now let's have a little detour on gyroscopes here because these are things that people might have heard the name of, but what are they actually? A gyroscope is when you might have something that's spinning in one direction. If you put a force on it from another direction, it can actually cause it to spin in a, in a different plane, in a different perspective. So you might have like a wheel that's spinning one way and then it can start to sort of rotate round in a different direction. And I wonder if people have kind of experienced this, maybe a practical experiment that's sometimes done in schools, for example, with a bicycle wheel where you kind of hold it around the axis and spin it, and then depending on what way you hold it up, you can kind of experience different forces on your arms. Is it something like that? Yep, you can do something where you're sat on a stool and if you're holding a bicycle wheel that's spinning and then you sort of change the direction of that wheel spinning, you'll actually start spinning round on your stool. OK, so back to the egg then. We saw this horizontal force being generated on the egg because of its spinning and because of the centre of gravity of the egg wasn't really central. So then why did it actually go up on its end? This is due to the, the gyroscope action, and this is where the maths really came in for the, the explanation that Keith Moffat gave, because it then took sort of two pages of these equations, which, which proved why the centre of mass then actually rises, and that was a really surprising thing, that, that what it looks like, because the, the centre of mass rises, which to us is, looks completely strange, because the egg was stood on its, on its tip, and you'd expect it to fall over. OK, and I mean, beyond that point, we're talking about two pages of equations that really are very hard, are they? Um, yeah, I struggle to understand them, so yes. <laughs> and we are talking about a PhD student at Cambridge University, no less, so uh, there you go. OK, well, we've all had fun. I think Imogen and Bryony, how did you like our experiment? Um, it was very good, but I'm going to go home and practice it. <laughs> yeah, OK, well, I, th I think you kind of got it going, but clearly Sheena is a bit of an expert, isn't she? Yeah. OK, and yourself, Bryony, what did you think of that? No, it's very impressive, slightly unexpected, but it's good. OK, yeah, that's great. All right, well, we've surprised our volunteers and hopefully you've been surprised at home too. That's all then from Colchester County High School, so we'll be back next week with some more Kitchen Science. So thanks to Sheena as well. Until then, it's a goodbye. Thanks very much, Derek. In fact, next week they'll be over at Downham Market doing some very interesting experiments with food colouring and water. So uh, you're going to need some water and some food colourings if you want to take part next week. Uh, well done to John, I guess. Thank you very much for taking the part, John. Uh, brilliant. I know you've said you'd like to donate your prize to one of the other people. Well, we think you need something, so we've got a wonderful book all about who made the moon to give to you. Okay. Thank you for taking part Great this evening. Stuff. Thank you. All right. We had a massive response to this evening's kitchen science experiment. I'm sorry if, uh, if you got pipped to the post by John, who did the experiment on his washing machine. I hope he didn't have it on at the time, because that may have been a little bit of cheating. But thank you to everyone who took part all the same. And just to flag up on next week's programme, we're going to be finding out about the science of BSE, a mad cow disease, because, of course, in the last week or so, British beef has gone back on the menu right across Europe. 
Was it all hot air? Where is this epidemic and this plague of BSE that was supposed to get into humans? And is it still lurking out there? Tony Minson and, uh, and also Margaret Stanley will be here to discuss all of that. Right, returning to our present situation with dinosaurs, we've got a couple of minutes left. Leslie and uh, Matt are here in the studio and they're talking us through their fossils. Come on, Leslie, introduce us to the rest of your range. OK, I've brought another one here that's basically a, a coiled or twisted circle, if you like, uh, with a series of holes in the middle of it. Um, this is a, an animal that you may know the name of, an anim- ammonite, which is a little bit like uh, a living nautilus. would have had a, a, a squid-like animal out the front and then this sh- big coiled shell on the back of it. So these lived in the sea as well, like ammonites? Yep. Oh, yes, these right. are all, these are all um, uh, excuse me, yes, living in the sea. Um, very much, like I say, like a living nautilus. They had a big eye. They're kephalopods, kephalopod mollusks, so they're very big um, uh uh, big predators in the seas. And some of these got huge. Some of these got up to two or three metres in diameter. Now, just very briefly, Leslie, because we are into the last minute or so, but these guys were clearly very successful. Why did they disappear? Good question. Um, again, maybe it was a change in the environment. When Once this uh, uh, putative uh, um, meteorite struck the Earth, it changed a lot of the climates. So maybe this was just they just couldn't survive in the, in the, in the e- ecosystems that were left. Well, I reckon we've packed just about as much as we can into tonight's programme. Thank you to everyone for listening to us this evening. It's been great having the pleasure of your company, and I hope you've enjoyed tonight's programme. As I say, next week we're going to be catching up with the science of BSE and also the vaccine for preventing cervical cancer. Margaret Stanley has invented that vaccine, and it's probably going to make this disease, which currently kills more women than any other disease worldwide, a thing of the past. 